How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I was surprised she was able to get both of her legs behind her head. And, you know, from there, things just opened up for me, literally and metaphorically. And, uh, you know, what can I say? Fourth grade was a weird time. What the fuck are you talking about? That? <laughs> I don't know. We were we we're supposed to be talking about something, so it just doesn't start awkwardly. And I think I ended up. You can just always just start with Gary saying, "Well, hello," and oh, you know, well, you're talking about kindergarten sex. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh made it more awkward. Anyway, <laughs> oh, sorry guys. Happy Halloween. Well, hello, <laughs> and welcome to Cinema Shock Citizens, the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm, I'm not doing a fun voice, but I'm Justin Bishop. <laughs> I always have a fun voice, and I'm Todd Davis. <laughs> Todd, the horror guy Davis. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> From now on. <laughs> that's it, Todd, the horror guy Davis. We just of released course. our Halloween special uh, a few days ago. I hope you enjoyed that, where me and Todd... Uh, didn't really count down it wasn't a countdown because todd because yeah, todd spent months putting together a list of horror <laughs> movies but did not bother to actually rank them it was just a random <laughs> right. oh okay so, i haven't heard this yet so no yeah, rankings well, just, just well no no i mean it just came out a few hours ago as of the time we're recording this but as of the time you're listening to this it came out several days ago so hopefully you've had a chance to listen to it it was fun though uh, Gary wasn't there, uh, as you could probably guess, since he didn't know that there was no countdown. Gary, um, Gary ghosted us. Uh, not really. Yeah. He told us he wasn't going to be there. So I, I was about to say, to be fair, I was told like a day or so before. I know. Yeah, it was a very last minute thing. But, you know, but me and Todd made it happen, didn't we, Todd? Uh, yeah, we did. We're committed. We're committed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a big weekend. It's Halloween weekend as we're recording this. And Halloween. So this Halloween. is Halloween. Weekend. Actually, on this day, this is Halloween. Anyway, so yeah, we're doing it. I just want to see Billy Eilish do the um, do the Sally song. No, oh, you post it, but I did not. Yeah, it's good. You should check it out. I will. That sounds fun. Yeah, they did. uh, Danny Elfman did this uh, big. He does it. I don't know if he does it every year, but he's done it several times where he does a big concert with the music from from nightmare before christmas and this time he had uh he had the guy who did oogie boogie's voice actually reprising his role and then lock shock and barrel he had paul rubens who is one of the original ones and he had weird al as one of them which is pretty fun but then yeah he had billy eilish come out and do sally's song and then at the end when she comes back to do that reprise yeah i mean it wasn't televised or anything but you can find youtube videos nice yeah i'll look that up that sounds dope pretty cool anyway you guys ready to talk about some which yes. movies yeah some, some, we didn't civil, have a horror movie. civil discord no spookies 
for no, us. No, that's why we did year. a Halloween special with me and Todd that you yeah. were invited to. Oh, at least I was going to say <laughs> at least we have a person in a mask. Yeah, lots so of people person. in masks. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. The yeah. most of the population. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we all kind of wearing masks? Really, oh, we're getting deep. Nothing's <laughs> here, we here unless you hate fascism. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> unless you hate fascism it's spooky or unless Wait. maybe you are a fascist and then i guess either way if you're if yeah you're, i guess so that's yeah. true either way there's something anyway. to be scared of here so you know let's just can we just start the show i guess I yeah guess. yeah <laughs> yeah i, think we I can't think of out. a good way to really transition into this so i'm just gonna just gonna get going for episode four episode four of our Wachowski series uh, and our series looking at the career of the Wachowskis. Uh, so if you've been listening, you know that of course the matrix big success made a couple of sequels and the, the sequels were huge. Uh, I mean, enormous, enormous productions. Mm. And after those massive productions on the two matrix sequels, which we talked about on our last episode, the Wachowskis, Lana and Lily Wachowski, they were in no big hurry to return to the directing chair. They needed a break uh, after doing this back-to-back $300 million production. They needed a break. So, yeah. But they didn't want to like leave filmmaking completely. They weren't really going on a sabbatical. They just didn't want to be in charge of the production. So for the next project that they had attached their names to, uh, they returned to a script that they had been tinkering with since the mid-1990s, since before the production of the first Matrix. Mm. And that was an adaptation of the British graphic novel V for Vendetta. Truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country. Excuse me, miss. I'm sorry. No, you're not. But you will be. The only verdict is vengeance. The vendetta. <laughs> If our own government was responsible for the deaths of a hundred thousand people, you really want to know? You're getting back at them for what they did to you. What was done to me was monstrous. And they created a monster. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want everyone to remember why they need us. I wish I wasn't afraid all the time. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. It is you. Several prominent party members have been murdered, Chief Inspector. This is exactly what he wants. What? Chaos. Beneath this mask, there's more than flesh. There is an idea, Mr. Creepy, and ideas are bulletproof. Remember, remember the 5th of November. So before we get into the development on the film, I thought it would be a good idea to take a quick look at the history of the original comic book that it's based on. Mm-hmm. Be for Vendetta, the comic, was written by the legendary comic book scribe, I would call him legendary, uh, Alan oh, Moore. Alan yeah. Moore, one of the best. Early on in his career, uh, he wrote V for Vendetta. So Alan Moore, we haven't talked about him on this show yet, uh, but he was born on November 18th, 1953 in Northampton, England, where he grew up in a neighborhood known as the Burroughs, which was a poverty-stricken area where illiteracy was widespread. Uh, but despite that, Moore was a big reader. He, re- in his words, read omnivorously as a Ooh. child from the age of five, checking out books from the local library. And it was around this time he gets into reading that he also starts reading comic strips. Initially, British strips uh, like Topper and The Breezer, but eventually he started reading American imports like 
uh, the Flash and Detective Comics and Fantastic Four. He starts getting into the superhero stuff. Then in the late 1960s, Moore began publishing his own poetry and essays in fanzines, uh, eventually establishing his own fanzine called Embryo. And through Embryo, Moore became involved in a group known as the Northampton Arts Lab, which was an alternate arts, uh, like an alternative arts center uh, that would subsequently make significant contributions to the magazine, to Embryo. So they kind of partnered up. And it wasn't long before Alan Moore began dealing LSD at school, and he eventually that's, got expelled for doing that's less, so. That's less cool. I mean, <laughs> I mean... At, you know, do what you do what you want. I guess you shouldn't do it at school, probably. Yeah, probably. But, <laughs> but, you know, listen, whatever it takes to get through the day. Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, it, the headmaster of the school. So he, he got expelled, and then the headmaster actually reached out to other schools that Moore had applied to and told them not to accept him because he was. And this is a quote from Alan Moore: "A danger to the moral well-being of the rest of the students there," which was probably true end quote. <laughs> Moore wasn't like super hung up about it because he really disliked school. Uh, he was a good student, uh, although he, he did note that, you know, growing up in the boroughs, he was kind of top of the class because there was, like I said, a lot of illiteracy. And he did find that like when he went to uh, other areas where there was uh, people were better educated, that he, he was kind of a middle of the road student, you know, but it wasn't a bad student, but he just didn't like it. He had no interest in academic study. And later uh, he even described it as saying that there was a, uh, this is another quote, a covert curriculum being taught that was designed to indoctrinate children with punctuality, obedience, and acceptance of monotony, which is a very Alan Moore thing to say. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, very. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he continued to live with his parents for a few more years, uh, kind of bouncing from one unsatisfying blue collar job to another, uh, eventually get kind of like an office job. But then he finally decided this was not the life for me. And he wanted to earn a living doing something more artistic. So he abandoned his office job, taking up both writing and illustrating his own comics. And many of these early comics appeared in alternative fanzines and magazines. And then in late 1979, Moore and his longtime friend Stephen Moore, no relation, I don't think, uh, they co-created a violent cyborg character named Axel Pressbutton uh, for some comics in the British magazine. Uh, it's a, a music magazine actually called Dark Star. Uh, that, I looked up Pressbutton because I'd never heard of this character, but this was a, it was a pretty popular character. He appeared in that you know, the Dark Star magazine, but he did eventually get his own uh, his own comic. He was described. This character Pressbutton is described as a violent cyborg with the face of Ernest Borgnine, a button on his chest which delivers orgasmic pleasure when pressed, and a phobia about vegetation. Interesting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> don't, don't think the movie would have been made about that one. <laughs> no, I, I would. Well, I mean, I'd watch it. It sounds like something that could be in, in, in heavy metal or something, honestly. I, yeah, I was just thinking, like, <laughs> all of this sounds like something that would appear in heavy yeah. metal, for sure. So this character, and it was actually written and drawn under Alan Moore's pseudonym of Kurt Vile, which is not the not the singer-songwriter that is currently quite popular today. It's actually a play on a name of a German composer, I think. Uh, Kurt Vile, and then Steve Moore's pseudonym of Pedro Henry. This is the this is who they published this under. Uh, it ended up being a very popular character when further stories appeared in a music newspaper called Sounds and in a comics anthology called Warrior. Uh, and by this time, by time it really like 
was on an ongoing thing. The character was being drawn and written primarily by Pedro Henry, by Steve Moore. And during this, did, did any of that stuff make it overseas at all? Oh yeah, you can find you can find the the press button stuff. I don't know that Warrior ever made it overseas, but there are uh, there are collections of of the press button stuff. Yeah, I don't know if any I, of it's still in print now. I haven't looked, but yes, I'll, I'll have to deep dive see what I can find. It sounds fun. So during this period, Moore would go on to create additional underground comics, often using pseudonyms. But it was when he linked up with 2000 AD, one of Britain's most prominent comic magazines, that his career would move into the mainstream. Uh, we've, I think, we've talked about 2000 AD here on the pa- on the show in the past, but I'm I'm sure it's come up at least once or twice. Probably when we talked about heavy metal, I imagine, because a lot of that stuff kind of came out of that area of the uh, area of the world, and you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, Judge Dredd obviously came from 2000 AD and uh, a couple other things, but yeah. Will you stop clapping in front of the microphone? Yeah, sorry. There's this gnat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just thought he had a weird tick he's developed over the last week. <laughs> I'm just super excited to be here, but just in little spurts. I'm just like, yay. <laughs> so he Moore was interested in writing for 2000 AD, and, and he submitted a script for their long-running Judge Dredd series. So while they didn't really need any writers for Judge Dredd, they, they, had, uh, they had writers. Uh, but fellow writer Alan Grant saw a lot of promise in Moore's work and hired him to write some short stories for the publication's uh, series called Future Shock. So Moore starts writing for 2000 AD, and he did spend a lot of the early 80s as a freelance writer uh, being offered work by Marvel UK, actually, and uh, the publishers of 2000 AD and Warrior. And it was with Warrior magazine that Moore would, in his words, start to reach his potential. Uh, he was initially given two ongoing strips in Warrior, a Marvel Man, which later changed to Miracle Man due to obvious copyright issues, yeah. and V for <laughs> Vendetta, the latter of which was co-created with artist David Lloyd. Part of what Justin's talking about with Alan Moore's reaching his potential here is that Alan Moore slowly morphed into a wizard. Yes. And at least in his own mind. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this was this was around that time, I think. And the, yeah. The hair started growing out. He started look, looking like Gandalf. And it's got a little bit more of a Rasputin look, let's be honest. Yeah, that's yeah. Gandalf. For sure. <laughs> well, a buddy of mine who lives over in England, Jake Donaldson, uh, he's another comedian. He uh, tells told me the story of working a, working a gig over there at a pub. And uh, this one dude just came, this kind of weird looking dude came backstage and started hanging out with all the comedians and like bouncer said nothing bartender said nothing they just kind of let him wander back there and it didn't dawn on him until one of the other comedians went up to him and was like i love watchmen it was like oh it's alan moore just hanging oh, out backstage wow. with all the comedians <laughs> weird like, yeah he just does that the weird thing about that is that i didn't realize that alan moore had a sense of humor i was about <laughs> to say the same thing he's like the least funny creative person so. well he, he just knows where to find damaged people <laughs> <laughs> So the first V for Vendetta strips appeared in Warrior magazine in black and white between 1982 and 1985, where according to Warrior publisher Des Skin, great name, by the way, Mm. uh, it was one of the least popular strips in the magazine. Uh, He would later say, quote, if I'd have given each character their own title, the failures would have certainly outweighed the successes with the uncompromising V for Vendetta probably being an early casualty. Uh, So he's saying that the, People didn't 
particularly like it, or at least his readers didn't particularly like it. And Warrior ended up getting canceled by its publisher in 1985 with two completed issues never published. Uh, after cancellation, though, several companies, they saw the potential in V for Vendetta, and they tried to convince Moore and Lloyd to let them publish and complete the story for them. And the two eventually paired up with DC Comics. Uh, in 1988, DC published a 10-issue series that reprinted the original Warrior stories, but in color. The only reason they weren't printed in color in Warrior wasn't, it wasn't a creative choice. It was because Warrior couldn't afford to print them in color. So DC prints them with, with color this time, and then continued the series to completion with the first new material appearing in issue number seven. Nice. So I actually reread the comic leading up to this, and I was very curious where it stopped, like where the Warrior publication stopped back mm-hmm. in the early 80s. Because you got to think this was Warrior was canceled in 1985. It was 1988 before DC picked it up. So three years. It ends. The, the issue in the in the graphic novel, the chapter that ends where Warrior's publication would have ended, the final frame of or the final whatever you call it the final page of that yeah is when evie walks out after being tortured and kidnapped and real and she walks out of her cell and into the shadow gallery realizing that it was v the whole time and that's where it stopped can you imagine being Ah. an avid reader at the time and that's when it stops and you and then the magazine gets canceled my god oh. <laughs> what a cliffhanger yeah geez we, that actually happened to me i was reading there was a there was a book that started up right after high school uh called Stormwatch team achilles and uh this was 2002 2003 like right after 9-11 um and it was very like politically driven and i didn't usually read stuff like this but it was really good and like it, it had a lot of weight to it. The art was amazing. And then it got to a point where mid mid storyline, it just, there just wasn't any more. Apparently like the writer got fired and wow. Yeah. It's a whole big thing, but like I can speak to that feeling of just having, you know, you're into this story, you're really into it. And then just crickets, nothing. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, once it got oh. canceled, readers didn't know that it was going to get picked back up by DC comics later on, you know? Right. So for like all they knew it right was now. done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why getting canceled? Yeah. But that, I think that's going to come back. Uh, you honestly, nah, I think HBO is going to pick it up or something. HBO. Why it. got canceled? Yeah. Why well, got canceled before the final season even ended? Uh, FX canceled it. And, I was going to say, uh, it just started, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think HBO is going to pick it up because it's HBO's own, it's the same company. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so V for Vendetta. Back to V for Vendetta. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the ahead. comics plot was drawn upon an idea that Alan Moore has submitted to a script writing competition way back in 1975. Uh, it, was, it wasn't based on that, but it, it kind of took ideas from that. And that comic was called The Doll. And it actually involved a transgender or, or transsexual, as Moore described it, terrorist in white face makeup who fought against a totalitarian state in the then futuristic 1980s. So once they began to develop the comic together, it was actually David Lloyd who suggested dressing the character of V up as Guy Fawkes. Because uh, previous designs were more traditionally kind of superhero looks. So that was actually a contribution from Lloyd. Not, that was not in Moore's original plan. And then the political climate of the early 80s in Britain also heavily influenced Moore's writing on the comic. In his comic, 
uh, Margaret Thatcher's conservative government would lose the 1983 elections. Uh, this, of course, didn't happen. At the time he was writing, they, those elections had not happened yet. He was sort of sure that they were going to happen, and that's why he wrote that into his comics. Uh, and then when Moore wrote his introduction to the first issue of the DC publication in 1988, you know, six years later, five years later, Thatcher was entering her third term of office. So he clearly kind of missed the mark on that prediction. Didn't yeah. have your finger on the pulse of the political climate, did, did you, Allie? <laughs> Allie. I don't know. I don't know why I said that. They're, they're so, tight. And in the years since its publication, the comic has come to be known as one of Moore's best works. A milestone in comic publishing, an important component, I think, in the shift in comics taking a darker, more adult-oriented approach. I think it's a combination of Moore's work and, and Frank Miller's work that really yeah. moved comics in that direction for better or worse. Yeah, uh, they so, always, uh, most folks always point to Alan Moore's work here and Watchmen and then here Dark and Watchmen and the Dark Dark Knight Returns. Knight Returns. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. 80s got like really grim and gritty. For a long Very. time, it not been, you know, comics weren't really taken seriously for anybody right. who doesn't know that. I mean, it's all this pal bang zip. Like the 60s Batman show, you know, is what people thought of when they thought of comic books. Right. And so yeah. people started to get a handle on you could do more stuff with comic books than that. You can start telling more serious stories. And uh, in the wake of like Vietnam and, you know, you know, starting into the Reagan era, you know, it got very cold and dark and yeah, all of that stuff. Well, with things like this uh, magazine too, and, and, and in other places, I mean, with, with a guy like Alan Moore, I mean, what you start to realize is you can't really, you can't do as much as you want to with like the big names. Uh, people, the publishers are going to be pretty protective of those, but you could start taking characters that nobody cares about and telling different stories. Like uh, I, when they kept referencing on one documentary, it was like Swamp Thing and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, anyway, British, and the, and like Justice said, the British writers are, are all very politicized around this time. And oh, yeah. so uh, it all kind of, makes a nice uh perfect storm for for stuff like v and uh because I, I think even you know they were gonna make it originally like a urban gorilla uh that was like part of the idea uh alan wanted something more theatrical uh which left to david loyal think thinking of the uh guy fox mask yeah uh, mm. which was a thing yeah. previous to this the idea that like the mask it didn't look like this one but a yeah. guy fox mask did not originate with them no the so like in the in the 20th century they would like the early 20th century i mean it was around i mean since like the late 1800s i think they had yeah. like the celebration and um but uh like they even had like issues with it and stuff like uh it was it was a pretty well-known thing through like the 50s and then sort of in the 80s uh it had kind of fallen out of favor. They said like Halloween had become like hugely popular. So like the right. idea of wearing the guy Fox Fox mask. And during this time when they had had this idea, uh, they uh, David Lloyd wrote a note, like basically when they were working on the developing the story uh, and the note said, why don't we portray him as a resurrected guy Fox complete with one of those paper mache masks and a cape and conical hat. He looked really bizarre it would give Guy Fox the image he's deserved after all these years. We shouldn't burn the chap every November 5th, but celebrate his attempt to blow up Parliament. And uh, Alan Moore said, uh, quote after that, how interesting it was that we should have taken up the image right at that point where it was apparently being purged from the annals of English iconography. 
He said, uh, all of the various fragments that in my head suddenly fell into place, united behind that single image. Yeah. Oh, also yeah. very Alan Moore talking. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> very, but, very. but I, I like that. Like the idea, like one thing sparks like a an avalanche of, of ideas, you know, uh, mm. which kind of honestly works into the themes of the film itself. Very much. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it, the, like you mentioned, the Guy Fawkes mask, it wasn't original to this, but David Lloyd, the season that it all took place and he couldn't find one. So he had to make up his own. So the image of the Guy Fawkes mask that you see is created by David Lloyd with like the rosy right. cheeks and the weird grin on yeah. it. And uh, so, and, and, and another thing about this comic too, that I found interesting is like, and I bought the graphic novel for this just to read it. They, their idea was to make it more filmic in the first place. Like David Lloyd wanted it to be taken more seriously. Well, Alan Moore's original According to David Lloyd, at least uh, in interviews around the time that the movie came out, uh, he said that Alan Moore originally conceived the story as a f- script, as a oh. film script. Oh, maybe that's nice. true. Yeah. yeah. And I know David Lloyd said he always hated like thought bubbles and stuff like that in the comics. So they wanted to write it like more narrative. Yeah. And, uh, they even tried like. There are no thought bubbles in this. That's I, I never considered that, but you're right. There are no thought bubbles in the comic. Yeah, they were trying to, he was like, you wouldn't have access to that part of the, the character. So we didn't right. want to display that. They, like color wise, you know, you mentioned it being in black and white and that would just be because they couldn't afford color at the time. But they also were like typically trying to avoid like super splashy, colorful scenes even later, just because they didn't yeah. want to like push away people that would be thrown off by what they expect from a comic book or something yeah. like that. So when DC started like trying to pull in the British folk, uh, you know, and they brought it back. That that was all stuff they were thinking about. And it was, it was just kind of interesting hearing that story. And, you know, this is all right at the time. I think when they were picking it back up, Alan was already writing The Watchmen and and writing new issues of V. Yeah. It's interesting. And uh, yeah, they were being published simultaneously for for brief a brief period. I guess mm-hmm. it's worth mentioning, too, just for the hell of it, that uh, Guy Fox, for those who don't know on that, too, I mean, it kind of gives you that that story but he's you know he was under parliament and gonna blow it up with gunpowder basically but he wasn't like everybody makes it out to be like a freedom thing but it was his was religion like he was he was he was a stark catholic and the catholics felt like they were not being recognized at the time because like elizabeth the first and come in sorry i read a bunch about guy fox so i just wanted to <laughs> it's okay yeah, go throw, yeah. to throw that up here on the yeah. podcast <laughs> yeah but you know, when Elizabeth first came in, she starts recognizing all of the religions mostly. And she was Protestant, I think. And like Catholics had typically been like the main uh, religion in England. And so they felt like they were kind of being shit on by uh, Elizabeth. And, and then in 1570, the Pope basically just excommunicated Elizabeth first and told the Catholics they don't have to listen to her anymore. You know, that that caused the whole thing. And so they were waiting for like on her deathbed. She named us. They, they had a lot of issues with her. Like she wasn't getting married. She wasn't having like a direct descendant. She like didn't hand over the reign, like the throne until her deathbed. She gave it to James first. And then they were waiting to see because he came from like Mary, Queen of Scots. And he had been from a Catholic family, but he recognized as Protestant. And so then they felt like they still weren't getting any love. and so this is when everybody started getting a little rebellious. And so like the actual plot was from like a guy named Robert Catsby or Catesby. I think he's mentioned in the, in the thing, like it's one of those names they look up on the computer. Um, ah. 
Yeah. So they're, they're going to the house of Lords and it's like a time when they're setting up, it's on November 5th. And so they start storing gunpowder underneath parliament in that exact place. It's a little different than the movie, like where it was going to be set up. Guy Fawkes gets brought in. Uh, he had been like living in Spain or something. And uh, somebody sent an anonymous letter to this Catholic Lord named uh, Montegal. And uh, on the 4th of November, uh, Guy Fawkes, he was hanging out waiting for Parliament to sit on the 5th, and he was discovered under the building. And, got fucking narked on? Yeah, he got narked on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but some of the guys, like, when they were saying this, I think it might have been Lloyd or something, said he was, like, sitting in a pub one day and saw a sign hanging up. It says, Guy Fawkes, the only man to ever step foot in Parliament with honest intentions. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's nice. but, it, but it wasn't so much freedom with that. I just thought, you know, just for his historically, it was to create like chaos. They were just going to like anarchy. Yeah. Which is a major anarchy. plot of the graphic of novel. the comic. Yeah. More so than more so than the movie. Uh, so so the novel, the graphic novel comes out of the comics come out. Uh, of course, it's collected in, in, into full graphic novels later on. But it was pretty popular when it came out, which, of course, means that it's inevitable that Hollywood com- would come calling. And it did not take long at all for Hollywood to come calling on this. In 1988, uh, the year that it was published, producer Joel Silver acquired the rights to two of Moore's works, V for Vendetta and The Watchmen. Oh, wow. Yeah, which had just come out as well. So the initial screenwriter that Silver had hired to make uh, the adaptation was a writer named Hilary Hinkett. Uh, she's now an, an Oscar winner. She wrote the uh, the screenplay for Wag the Dog and won an Oscar for that. But at the time, she was best known for pinning the screenplay for the modern masterpiece, also produced by Joel Silver, called Roadhouse. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Y'all know, know we had a Roadhouse connection on this. Nice. Is, uh, was Patrick Swayze going to play V? Because sold. <laughs> Yeah, I would be the exactly. Honestly, yes. And Hinkin's screenplay was not particularly well received, and seems to uh, it seems to have a hard time knowing. I, I couldn't. I, I'll preface this by saying I could not find the full screenplay, but I did find some some summaries of her screenplay. And it seems that her screenplay has a hard time knowing if it's a straight drama or a satire. So, case in point, in in the her version of V for Vendetta, the government headquarters are in the shape of their namesake. So like the nose's building looks like a giant nose. The ear's building looks like a giant ear, uh, et cetera. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and Bishop Lilliman is part of a religion. In, in, in the movie and in the comic, I'd say he's pretty strictly uh, a regular bishop or priest or whatever. But in her version, he was part of a religion that's part Catholicism and part airplane safety demonstration. <laughs> And the fingermen, okay. the fingermen, uh, who are you know the like police kind of, of yeah, this world. yes, I'm someone in her of a version of the comics, in, in her version, they are genetically engineered half man, half goat creatures. I mean, okay, uh, yeah, right. yeah. It's a choice. Uh, and, but the thing is, a lot of the rest of her script is played pretty straight, with a lot of the plot points playing out exactly as they do in the comic. Uh, which makes all the weird, goofy, like satirical elements or, or, you know, the silly stuff like a giant nose building or a half man, half goat creature seem a little like weird. Like they don't fit together, you know. It feels uh, like this she, whole script was repurposed as like Tank Girl. 
or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's also a very big divergence uh, with with V's character, who in her version it, it is revealed to actually be Evie's father. Now that's something that uh, uh. is played with in the comic book because he kind of like toys with her emotions a little bit in the comic that he might be her her long lost father before eventually saying no i'm not your father you know like it, it's very clear but in her version of the script in hinkman's version it, yeah it it's definitive he is evie's father oh wow so this script for reasons that i think are pretty obvious uh, was thrown out <laughs> it was never used yeah uh, but by the mid-1990s a couple of up-and-coming filmmakers took a stab at the story themselves and they were of course Lana and Lily Wachowski, who were longtime fans of the comic book. And they had begun uh, developing their version of the script back before The Matrix even began. This was something they'd been working on for years. And their original script, their original draft, followed the graphic novel pretty closely. Uh, but the adaptation never really got off the ground, maybe because they were, at the time, still inexperienced filmmakers. Uh, and, of course, then they did Bound, and then their attention shifted to The Matrix. Joel Silver, they, who just sounds like a bro, uh, always. He just uh, he, uh, he. My favorite part of anything was seeing an interview with him where he was like, "I hadn't even heard of a graphic novel before this." And I just, <laughs> I don't know if that's normal or not, but that's uh, that just caught me off guard. But yeah, uh, he described the original script like he said he saw it, and it was just very, very dense, which uh, doesn't surprise me with what no, we know no, about no. them so far. Right? He said it just didn't have the. Uh, punchiness that this movie has so during post-production on the second and third matrix films they revised the screenplay a little bit uh moved they moved the time period forward because the original graphic novel set in like the 90s 1997 1998 so they moved the time period forward they never really say when this movie takes place but it's a what i've seen it seems to be right around 2028 uh, and they also made evie older uh, Evie in the comic is 16 years old and she's a sex worker. Uh, so they, they moved, they, they, they changed a lot of stuff, but that's one of the main things that they, that they changed. And they offered the script to James McTeague. They actually took him out, like, I think for his birthday one year. And they asked him about the, the graphic novel, like if he'd ever read it, they gave him a copy or they gave a copy of it to him, I think for his birthday. And then basically as sort of a birthday gift, Hey, you want to direct this movie? <laughs> nice. Yeah. So while V for Vendetta would mark his directorial debut, McTeague's career in the film industry began in the late 1980s, where he worked as a production runner or production assistant on a number of small movies filmed in his native Australia. Uh, but over the years, he worked his way up to third and then second assistant director, and he broke into mainstream Hollywood in 1994 as the second AD for the Ray Liotta film No Escape. Uh, which I remember liking a lot when I was a kid. I have not seen it since, so who knows? Uh, and also uh, the big budget video game adaptation of the sh of Street Fighter, the comic book. You know, the Jean-Claude oh, Van Damme. He was the yeah. second AD on that. So those were his first like Hollywood movies that he worked. Uh, he would later be the second AD on Dark City, a film with connections to The Matrix that we discussed back on that episode. And he was actually supposed to be the second AD on The Matrix as well. But when the first AD, the assistant director, uh, who was a friend of McTeague's, had to drop out, the Wachowskis made McTeague their first assistant director. And then the following year, after the first Matrix, so the Matrix is his first gig as like a first AD. Uh, then the following year, he worked as the first AD under a, 
a guy named George Lucas on a little film called Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Oh, one of the Star Wars. That George Lucas. Okay. George Lucas. So that was released in 2002. Uh, He followed that up as the first AD on The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, which, as we know, were filmed as a single large production. And it was during post-production on Revolutions that the Wachowskis introduced McTeague to V for Vendetta. So he gets the job. I mean, that's a that's a pretty gig. It's a good gig. And it it shows that the Wachowskis really had faith in his abilities, like to, Mm. to be able to give them something that they'd been working on at this point for over a decade. Well, knowing how, <laughs> how well they pitch things for him to be able to interpret and follow along as uh, as an AD is uh, shows that he's on the same page with them, whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. They seem to, I don't know. I don't know if it was more him or the, the Wachowskis, I guess, you know, had a big part of it, but just they, they said knock, they, they tried to work on knocking down the, novel to make it more filmic but it was already drawn that way so like i guess they're just like picking and choosing what to do and well you still can't adapt every little thing because it would have been a four-hour movie five-hour movie you know right uh so then they had to i think one thing that they really changed a lot from the original graphic novel i mean there's there's a lot of plot points that are changed pretty significantly but the the graphic novel focuses a lot on the the personal lives of members of, of the Norse fire party. Like you see their home lives and they're not exactly painted as like good people or, or sympathetic, but they are painted as like actual human beings, you know, whereas right. in the, in the, in the movie, they're definitely a little bit more black and white. Like these are the villains <laughs> kind of thing, yeah. especially yeah. Suttler who, who in the graphic novel is named Susan. Uh, his, his last name is Susan, not Suttler, but it seems like they, they crossed Susan with Hitler and created yeah. the name Suttler. They were definitely uh, you know, going for the Hitler vibes. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the comic, in the comic, he like falls in love with the computer that's known as fate. Uh, Cause you, in the, in the movie, you've got the voice of fate, you know, which is essentially like a Fox news uh, kind of news channel uh, broadcast. But in the, in the comic, it's like the voice of fate is like giving announcements to the people you know and fate is a supercomputer and yeah in the comic uh, the the subtler character susan literally like falls in love with a computer it's very bizarre and very weird and it's, <laughs> is, is a much more complicated character yeah and that and that's i mean that's going to be the big thing as we as we're talking about this as you're going to hear like most people have an issue with including alan moore himself i mean there's a lot of like intricacies that are left on the table here with these people yeah. they, they they also tried to focus more on the relationship with v and evie oh um, yeah for sure and uh like evie's a smarter character in the movie i think than she is really in the graphic novel she's very naive in the graphic novel at least yeah. at least at the beginning and like you said they they give i mean another difference is yeah they they make it pretty black and white on who the bad guys are there's never even any like i don't know barely any discussion on that at all like i mean they they straight up go into you know ethnic minorities are used for experiments and right homosexuality is illegal and all of that stuff uh, which i mean in in the graphic novel it's these people are still very much painted as the villains you just all you know a little bit more about their motivation like some of them are true believers in in this and even though their beliefs are are shitty they're still true believers and some of them are just trying to make it up the the corporate ladder kind of thing you know yeah uh, but they all have their motivations and you do get to see that which i understand why you wouldn't necessarily 
it's a, it's a lot to try movie. to tackle in a movie. Yeah, so I don't blame them for like, you can't, you know, uh, there's, there's lots of sides to all these stories and you can't, you just can't do it. Right. This is all at the end of the day. I mean, I think McTeague even says like at the end of the day, this is a, uh, this is still a action movie and a superhero movie. And, right. uh, uh, well, actually his exact quote is, uh, there's a lot of discussion about this political idea it's very good, but at the end of the day, this is a fictional story based on a comic book, and I didn't want that to get lost. If you get that stuff on the other side, that's fine. I'm making a piece of entertainment, and I want to have fun and use little movie devices to get the story across. Uh, I think that actually came up during a section about like the dominoes. Um, when like yeah. that that little section there, I think that's um, what he was talking, kind of referring to when he was getting in there like how hard they worked on the dominoes thing uh, yeah we'll talk about owen patterson in a minute but like you know they they had been working on that I, th- the only reason i'm bringing this up right now is because they they had tried it and it went off and did pretty well but it happened so fast like if you ever hit down dominoes it's never like the nice like slow rolling thing and uh so it went too fast and it missed like one or two so they had to call a guy named robin wires who is known in Hollywood as the, uh, as Mr. Domino. <laughs> and like, apparently this is what he does. He works with Domino and Domino art and is very good at helping movies when they need stuff. I have no fucking clue. I just there there the is a job in Hollywood for everyone. Anyway, Mr. Domino, thank you for, for well, we're not that far into production yet. We're still, uh, James McTeague just got hired. Well, I, I know right I now. jumped ahead, but I, I just uh, I thought it, was, it just flowed naturally. Did it? Okay. Well, because I talked <laughs> about the little movie devices, McTeague said. That's true. Well, the dominoes are in the comic book. Oh, yeah, that's right. The dominoes Weird. are in the comic book. Yeah, he does oh, that in the comic. It's it's a big part of one of the issues where it, it keeps cutting to him. Oh, yeah. Uh, push that, that, push, ah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you slippery bastard, McTeague. so anyway uh mcteague met you know we mentioned that he had worked on attack of the clones and it was on the set of attack of the clones where he first met natalie portman who he would eventually cast as evie hammond though she was not the first and only choice for the role he he had her in in mind for it uh and he had faith that she would be great but they did test some other actors such as scarlett johansson and bryce dallas howard uh, but he says that Natalie Portman just came in and owned it. Like she totally understood the character of Evie. I saw uh, Keira Knightley was also on that list. All good choices, but yeah. Well, Keira, I mean, also from, well, she wasn't an attack of clones, I guess. She was just in uh, Phantom Minutes. They were just looking for a Natalie Portman lookalike. That's what it was. <laughs> so Portman ended up working with dialect coach Barbara Berkery to speak in that British accent, uh, which... I think is a fine British accent. I don't know. I'm I was going to say, how do we I'm feel sure. about Natalie Portman? I mean, I British think it's accent. fine. I don't know. I'm not British, so I'm probably not the best person to <laughs> comment on it. I know that I can tell a bad American accent when somebody who's not American is doing one. There you uh, go. But I, so I don't know. I mean, it's fine to me, but I know I've, I've heard people talk shit about it, but I think she does fine. You know, Portman, she, she really like, she's an incredibly intelligent person. Like Natalie Portman's a, sort of a genius. Uh, I think she went to Harvard, like she's incredibly intelligent. And so when she was preparing for this role, 
She watched films such as The Weather Underground, which is a 2002 documentary about the radical left-wing revolutionaries in the late 60s and early 70s who bombed the Capitol building and broke Timothy Leary out of prison. Uh, They are called The Weather Underground. Uh, And then she also read the autobiography of famed Israeli Prime Minister uh, I'm going to say this wrong. Uh, Menachem Begin? Is that right, Gary? Am I saying that right? I don't know why you think I'm Israeli. Like I would know that. Um, I, I was looking at the name and thinking it's probably, and I mean this with all due respect, knowing knowing Israel like I do, it's probably something like Menachem. Menachem. You know, yeah. it's got that yeah that sound. In it. Like the guys from Canon Films, right? What's his name? It's something similar to that. Anyway. Uh, he was an Israeli prime minister, uh, and in this autobiography, he describes his early Soviet imprisonment and subsequent leadership of Ergon, which is this militant Zionist group in Palestine responsible for terrorist activities intent on expelling the British from Palestine. So she's researching this kind of uh, some stuff that's sort of from these po- what what that have similar ideologies, I guess, as as mm-hmm. V might mm-hmm. have. Yeah, uh, Stephen Fry and one of the things I was watching mentioned, you know, one of the cool parts to try to think about with this is like one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah, and, uh, right. Exactly. That's a cool quote. That's a very cool quote. Uh, I love Stephen Fry. But he's, uh, he's, yeah, he's wonderful. He's fantastic. He, he's really great in this and in everything. He's, I just love that guy. Uh, so for his part, director McTeague has said that he was influenced by a host of films, most notable among them, uh, Gilo Pontecorvo's 1965 film, The Battle of Algiers, which is a highly realistic account of the Algerian revolution against the French fought from 1954 to 1962. Uh, really good movie. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend checking it out. It's uh, streaming on, it's, it's a long time member of the Criterion Collection, so You can find it on the Criterion channel and on DVD and Blu-ray, but you should check that out. It's a, it's a really great war film. So in the title role of V, an actor named James Purfoy was cast initially. Uh, Purfoy, he's not a huge name actor in the realm of movies, but he does remain one of those character actors who often appears in prominent supporting roles, especially on television, uh, where he's mostly worked since uh, really before 2005, although he had prior to V had some significant supporting roles in A Knight's Tale and in the first Resident Evil movie. I'm not sure oh, okay. like how huge it was for everyone, but I watched that show. The following was Kevin Bacon, which yeah. is based off that like old scream script or whatever that uh, uh, with the cult leader, he played the cult leader, Joe Carroll. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. And he, he played, I think Marcus Aurelius in, in the, uh, in Rome on oh, HBO yeah, after this as well. Yeah. So he, he played big roles, but, the, but those two roles come after, the V for Vendetta debacle. Cause, cause I'm sure our listeners are thinking, wait a second, this guy's not fucking V. I thought that was Hugo weaving. Uh, and, and you would be right. Purfoy ended up dropping out of the production a few weeks into filming. And at the time when it happened, it was reported that he had issues wearing the mask for the entire film. Uh, but in later interviews, he would say, and this is a quote, the only rumor I can scotch is that any, that it is that if anyone thinks I was too pussy to wear the mask, they're completely wrong. It has nothing to do with wearing the mask. Hmm. Uh, McTeague, yeah, <laughs> McTeague <laughs> kind of refutes this. Uh, he has said in several interviews that it wasn't necessarily because 
Purfoy just didn't want to wear a mask. He wasn't like being vain or anything. Uh, it was because he realized that his main tool as an actor, which is his face, was being taken away and that it was sort of a mutual understanding that this just wasn't working. And then Joel Silver would later say that it was a voice thing. Uh, he called it a voice thing, uh, that Purfoy didn't sound menacing enough. Uh, Purfoy himself, you know, he says that it, he left due to genuine creative differences about the way to approach the character of V. So who knows? It's a he said, he said, he said. They wanted me to sound like Hugo Weaving, and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so they hired Hugo Weaving. Yeah, so he was replaced by Hugo Weaving, who, uh, of course, we know worked with Silver and the Wachowskis and McTeague on the Matrix series. And Weaving was actually excited about the mask because he came from a traditional school of acting where mask work was actually a big part of his training. So he was actually very much looking forward to being able to do this. He talks about, I mean, the mask is, you know, it's, it's hard for some people. It's like, you know, it's just very claustrophobic. Uh, mm. You've got limited vision. Um, up and down into the sides and all of that. Well, you um, also show all of your emotion on your face and you're not able to do that. So you're having to do everything with body language. Oh yeah, yeah. Like all of V's dialogue is is completely dubbed. Um, initially, well, he, he, yeah, I mean, he he said the dialogue on set, but obviously they couldn't properly mic that. So he had to they essentially had perform, he had to perform the whole role twice. Yeah, <laughs> they had tried to, like, they had put a small microphone inside. Another one was designed that lit, like, along his hairline at one point, but neither would work, like, well enough that they could uh, do it. Certain scenes of the movie still feature James Purfoy as V. Um, he was that, a Yeah, there's a very small number of scenes where he's in the suit, but then they just dubbed Hugo's Yeah, Mateek says, uh, you know, can I tell the difference? Yes. Can the audience tell? I doubt it. Um, yeah. Hugo also said he based his accent on Harold Wilson, the uh, British Prime Minister from 1964 to 1970 and 1974 to 1976. That's a fun fact for you. Uh, <laughs> Thank if you. you're wondering what Harold Wilson sounds like, he sounds like Hugo Weaving, apparently. <laughs> it's uh well he's not talking in an australian accent at least so yeah Yeah. that's true which is his native accent he just he just really hugo weaving has such a distinct like there's something about his tone that you just can't well you also like most of his major roles that you've seen hugo weaving in this the matrix lord of the rings he's not speaking in his native accent oh yeah that's true because in, yeah, like in even it's like I mean, Red Skull or something, he's yeah, yeah, he's not in Red Skull. It, it, he's doing the German thing and Lord of the Rings, and in this, he's doing the British thing, and then of course he, he does the Walter Cronkite thing in the Matrix movies. Oh yeah, I forgot he's Walter Cronkite. So, so, what's what's really throws people <laughs> off is that at one point, though, you know, he definitely uh, refers to Evie as Mister Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's, it, gets, no. it gets awkward then. Other roles in the film were filled out by esteemed European actors, mostly from the UK, uh, such as Stephen Rea, who uh, is mostly known or most well known, I should say, for his breakout role in The Crying Game, for which he received an Academy Award. Uh, Stephen Fry, who we already mentioned, Stephen Fry is a legendary uh, man, uh, director, producer, comedian, actor, like he's he's done it all. I mean, he I guess it kind of made his name with uh, a little bit of Fry and Laurie, the the comic duo with him and and Hugh Laurie from, you know, now we know from House, but yeah, that's kind of where he made his name. Super, super intelligent guy. And he's uh, a he's a cool dude. I, I I really like him. 
they they asked the question in one interview, uh, how did you get this role? And he's just got the, well, I'd love to tell you that I'd, I was frolicking in the forest one day and I kicked over a rock and out from under the rock, an elf came out and the elf <laughs> uh, told me, I have a role for you. You'd be perfect for it. But no, none of that happened. Uh, my agent called and said, hey, you should go read for this movie. <laughs> um, but when they asked what he liked about the role, he said, big beaten up. I hadn't been beaten up in a movie before, and I was very excited about being clubbed to death. <laughs> I love that. And of course, playing Sutler, who we mentioned before, is the legendary John Hurt. And this is sort of a reversal of his role from uh, the the big screen adaptation of 1984, which I think, oh, is, yeah. I don't know if that was intentional on like McTeague and the Wachowskis part, but uh, John Hurt saw the connection, certainly, when he, when he started playing the role. Well, you know, John Hurt, he's wild. He was... They asked him, he was like, I was snorting crack cocaine, which is not typically how you do it, but it was on a hooker's asshole. And I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. And anyway, uh, and then they said, friend, you've done 1984. And I said, well, is it still 1984? Then, yes, of course. I, I, I thought we were much later in time. And just, anyway, I finished smoking the crack in the hooker ass and off I went. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing with that. Is that a direct was, quote? I was, I that's was a direct quote that from story, John Hurt. That, that, yeah. that's, that's, a good, that's a good story. That's what John Hurt be doing, y'all. He's dead, <laughs> so he's not doing anything now. He's, he's passed on. He was buried uh, with his crack. Um, <laughs> crack well, and crack. That's the real important. That's the poetic part of this story that you don't know. He's still classy. Oh, I get it. Wow. Uh, I should say Stephen Fry's character. I mean, I, I guess maybe we'll talk more about more of these but his character uh gordon dietrich is one of the ones that also is like very different in this movie like Stephen oh, he Fry. barely plays a talk about versus the the graphic novel yeah yeah he barely plays a, a role in the graphic novel like it's a very small character and obviously a very important character here yeah yeah i mean and this guy is like more more like v and is a gay yeah. man and, and like in the graphic novel he's actually in a relationship i guess you know with yeah with evie and stuff like that so he's more slimy in the graphic novel and in this yeah. one fry was like pushing for as a gay man i guess just that to, well yeah Steve, show that Stephen fry saw it uh, like he he really liked this role because you know he, it's something that he could relate to uh because Stephen fry is is a gay man but he was has not always been like out of the closet during his professional career uh i mean he, he has been for quite a few years now and i i think even quite a few years at the time of filming this, but you know, he, he's been, you know, he, he lived through Margaret Thatcher's England, like the England that inspired Alan Moore to write this. And he wasn't as able to be as open with who he was during that time period. Uh, Todd mentioned this before we started recording, but it's also worth mentioning. Uh, this is Imogene Poots first film. So yes. she'd done like a TV thing before this, like a small thing, but this is her first actual film role. Yeah, she plays the um, she plays the young version of Valerie in this. All right, so while we are on the subject of cast, uh, Todd, uh, did, did we find any Star Trekkers in this one? Zero. None? Zero Star Trekkers. Really? Yep. <laughs> I was very surprised. All right. Well, I was like, never... okay, I mean, they shot some stuff in England for sure. I'm, I mean, most of the stuff was shot in, you know, on the Paramount lots and all that stuff, but like maybe some of the movies nope no well, all right well zero just like not, the matrix yep not trekking with anybody this week <laughs> <laughs> Fuck man em. you got to start digging deeper in that uh 
crew or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I'm going to have to start. Yeah. Really deep diving, going through the entire list. So well, I can say if I may, uh, Chad Stolinski back for this stunt coordinator. Yep. Uh, yep. I don't remember how much detail we've gone into with him, but he's that guy that, you know, worked on the matrix movies. We went into a lot of detail on the matrix. Episode. Well, I was going to say, we know we <laughs> talked about him getting fucked up in the matrix and, uh, as Neo's double and, uh, He's also like Brandon Lee's double in the crow, I think. Yep, we talked and, about all of that. In our okay, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I'd be drinking sometimes during these. <laughs> anyway, obviously, goes on to direct John Wick. He's back. He's the stunt coordinator. Um, they love him. Uh, and uh, he he's the one, if you want to see his cameo, he is the guy who literally walks through fire. Uh, he wore like a special fire-resistant gel and the G-string. That's all he has on in that shot. <laughs> I had to lower so, his whole body temperature and uh it was like i think it was like three degrees below zero that night whoa um wow. on the shoot uh 15 so when before. you see the silhouette of v walking out that's him that yeah that's saying? him that's chad okay. well he uh, also played storm saxon in this which oh, is just he, like i didn't even notice that. yeah he plays storm saxon uh who's like the tv the tv character you know that's mm-hmm. him as well okay um but yeah, they had to like put on this like ice cold clothing, like it had been iced down and uh, and then like had to wear that. That's how they lowered his temperature down. It's three degrees below zero already. And then they had to cover Jeez. with fire resistant gel that had also been on ice all day. <laughs> and then he goes oh. up. So I imagine that scream is real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like screaming Jeez. out. That but, sounds uh, awful. He also helped out in the fight scenes and stuff in this. Uh, he, he describes them as, uh, I wouldn't call them martial arts, more violent theatrics. Yeah, um, yeah. His, his quote. Um, and actually, the guy brought in as the fight coordinator here is a guy worth mentioning. His name is Ryan Watson. Um, he had done a lot of stuff before this, but mostly like video game and small bits here and there on TV shows like Buffy and Alias and that sort of thing. Um, but this this same year, he had done Serenity and V for Vendetta, which kicked him off like hardcore in the movie. Oh, yeah. He's never, wow. never not had a, a role since. He Doesn't he that. work on The Mandalorian now? I was going to say, uh, he he went from, he he first ended up being like Zack Snyder's go-to guy. Okay. So he started working on 300, and then he went on to like Sucker Punch, Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman. Wow. Uh, he even did Wonder Woman. Uh, but yeah, most recently, he's been the fight choreographer for all of The Mandalorian and uh also juggle cruise with the rock if that matters i haven't seen that yet it's fun you know <laughs> yeah i mean i, I want to watch it's what you'd expect it to be yeah <laughs> so but some anyway. scenes for viva vendetta were filmed in london uh in london proper but for budgetary purposes a lot of the production was moved to postdam germany I'm assuming i'm saying that right postdam postdam germany uh, it's a suburb of berlin uh and the home of babelsberg studio which is a location where films like it's this like legendary studio in Germany films like Nosferatu and Metropolis were created there. So this place has been around like since the beginning of film as an art form. Oh, wow. essentially. So it's kind of a big deal to the Wachowskis to be able to shoot here. Cause you know, they're big fans of those old movies. And uh, it was also a place where uh, a lot of Nazi propaganda films were made uh, during uh-huh. a certain time period. So I remember John Hurt saying that, felt a little bit weird playing a a sort of Nazi-esque, Hitler-esque character giving these big passionate speeches on the same place where like 
uh, where like Goebbels was was having his filmmakers make Nazi propaganda films. <laughs> uh, but most of the scenes of in the film were shot on the sound stages there at Babelsberg. But there was some location work done in Berlin as well, specifically in three different locations. There was the uh, the Norse Fire Rally, that flashback that you get that's shot on location. Uh, all of the scenes in Lark Hill are shot on location, and Bishop Lilliman's bedroom. The filming lasted from early March to early June of 2005, and it marked the uh, the final film shot by cinematographer Adrian Biddle, who died of a heart attack four days before the film made its world debut. Uh-huh. So based on his uh, extensive resume, I, I do imagine that we'll come across Biddle again at some point on this podcast. But this, I believe, is the first mention we've had of him so far on the show. This is a guy, he got to start working for Ridley Scott's uh, advertising company and then when Ridley Scott moved into films he kind of followed him working as a clapper loader on the duelist which is Ridley Scott's first movie and as a focus puller in the camera crew on alien and he would later go on to work as a cinematographer on commercials uh, his most famous of which was an apple commercial directed by Ridley Scott in 1984 which is a very famous commercial at the time uh, and his work on that commercial combined with a personal recommendation by Ridley Scott got him his first feature film credit as a cinematographer. And that film was James Cameron's Aliens, which is a beautiful film. So the guys clearly got chops, you know. Uh, He would go on to be the director of photography on 25 films over his career, including The Princess Bride, Willow, uh, Event Horizon, and also on a couple of other Ridley Scott movies. Like uh, he did Thelma and Louise, and he did 1492 Conquest of Paradise which was a, I don't know if you guys remember that one. It was a dramatization of Christopher Columbus's voyage to America that I am sure has aged very, very well. Right. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. I will say this. I watched Event Horizon not too long ago and it still aged well. And It's the uh, only good movie uh, that Paul W.S. Anderson ever made. Yeah, and it, it <laughs> looks fantastic. It does. It's a great film. So to film the final scene at Westminster, which the area from... Uh, let me say i make sure i'm saying this right in case any of our british uh, fans because i know we've got some are listening trafalgar square uh the area from trafalgar square and whitehall up to parliament and big ben had to be closed for three nights from midnight until 5 a.m that's that's the worst english accent i've ever heard justin i wasn't trying to say it in an english accent (laughs) (laughs) i was just trying to say you you issued an apology beforehand it didn't even try (laughs) (laughs) but it was a big it was a big deal to shut off this area because this is actually the first time that this area had ever been used in a film production or had had ever been closed down for a film production because this is a super high security area this little area that they're they're closing was home to 10 downing street which is where the the pm lives and the ministry of defense so to close this down is a major security issue so uh, the, the fact that they were able to do this at all is, is pretty impressive. They were only yeah. allowed to, uh, I mean, I think background checks had to be conducted on every single actor, actress, technician, uh, anybody, especially if you had a weapon at any point. I mean, there had to be barcodes on every single piece of weaponry uh, oh, yeah. that got scanned uh, and tracked for like who is holding this when and like all of this shit. And yeah, they, they had to shut down traffic, but they could only do it like four minutes at a time. So they had to like Oof. shoot stuff in between that. I know Stephen Fry 
in some interviews afterwards said that the way that they were able to get this approved is because uh, this this guy Ewan Blair is his name. He was Tony Blair's son. Tony Blair, British Prime Minister at the time. Yeah, uh, he was working on V for Vendetta. Oh, uh, as like a <laughs> production assistant or something, uh, or you know, uh, he was a set runner or something kind of low on the movie set totem pole, but he was working on on the set. And Stephen Fry said the, the the way that they got this done was because he he called in some favors because his dad's the prime minister. Uh, Tony Blair and his government, of course, probably due to the content of the film, denied that and said that uh, that wasn't the case. That I was about to say it's all pretty the same. crazy. Yeah, like you let's use political favors to get a revolutionary film done. <laughs> like, right, <laughs> you know, man rebelling against the government. Yeah, yeah. So who knows? Who knows what side of the story is true? But it's a pretty pretty fun idea <laughs> that well that's the a crazy part with even with the guy fox thing throwing back to that for just a brief second is that you know the burning of the effigy of guy fox was more like a celebration that the queen lived you know instead of or the king lived or whatever that the empire stayed intact in you know even though he tried to do it it's it's yeah really the opposite turned. of what the opposite of what, <laughs> what it's kind of turned into i guess with this film right I mean, so maybe we, maybe it did that in England. I, I really don't know. Like, maybe yeah. it became more of a thing later. It just switched on its own. But so, as we discussed uh, previous movies in the series, this Wachowski series, uh, Bound, and especially the Matrix films, the Matrix trilogy, uh, as we were discussing those films, you started to hear a lot of the same names pop up over and over. The Wachowskis kept most of the creative team behind those films together for the entire series. Uh, so you would kind of think that V for Vendetta, because they're the producers, that that would also be the case. But uh, we already mentioned the cinematographer on this, which is not Bill Pope. It's, you know, Biddle, but that could also, I, I was thinking about this, could also be due to Bill Pope's experiences on the sequels that Gary discussed in, in that last episode. Uh, he didn't seem to have a great time with it. But Aside from the Wachowskis, I'll have you know, uh, by the way, I got a nice message from one of our listeners saying that they were very proud of me for standing up uh, about the sequels to The Matrix. Hey, we're all allowed to have opinions here. <laughs> and then they were like, I felt the same way and I didn't even want to rewatch them for this show. And <laughs> they're like, and I'm just happy to know that I don't have to feel like an idiot completely because I didn't like them. No, you don't have to like anything that we talk about. Hopefully you do, but <laughs> hopefully we're not just uh, having you watch a bunch of films that you hate. So, yeah, well, no, it's, it's worth yeah. it was worth revisiting. I even said that yeah. I was like, I'm glad yeah. I rewatched them. I just, you know, yeah, you have to remind I, I'm trying to be honest with myself yeah. here. But aside from the Wachowskis, Joel Silver and McTeague, uh, the only returning crew member in a significant role. And, and Gary mentions Chad Stahelski. But the only other re returning crew member in a significant role here was production designer Owen Patterson. Patterson, as we know, had been instrumental in bringing the unique look of the Matrix films to life. And I think his work here is just as incredible. Like he's doing this really great. Uh, I mean, obviously, clearly motivated by Nazi imagery. I mean, that's it's not this film is not subtle <laughs> when it comes to that or most things. Uh, but it still, it looks great, I think. And I think the Shadow Gallery in particular is a great piece of production design. Yeah. 
uh, I was talking with uh, Justin, well, yesterday or day before when we did the uh, the Halloween uh, recording that uh, it it reminded me of Hellboy. Like I was getting a lot of Hellboy vibes with some of that, uh, with some with the uh, the shadow gallery uh, specifically. But yeah, it didn't really it doesn't really look like the Wachowskis movie, but that makes sense because they didn't shoot this someone else did right um but yeah it's it's got that really unique look but it definitely draws you in there were i mean they were they were pulling from stuff obviously i mean realistic i mean it was very important to them to film where they filmed and that sort of thing because of these reasons but even like uh v's layer i was reading was like a it was a like pretty much a replica of a uh place in iraq that had been found where someone had like underground like a store like they had just recently dug it up or something that like somebody had like stored art and like stuff in iraq like it was it was the exact like view of that wow so todd you mentioned you know that the wachowskis didn't shoot this and uh as far as their involvement in the process mcteague says that they let him have a lot of freedom on it. Uh, and, uh, over the years, a lot of people, including myself, I, I've actually said this before, uh, have theorized that large chunks of the film were possibly ghost-directed by the Wachowskis. But according to McTeague, that was not the case. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a lengthy quote from him here, but he says, they were about trusting me to go off and give it the vision it needed to be directed with. So they kind of left me alone. They were there if I needed them, and sometimes I'd go, hey, what do you think about this? And they'd put their two cents worth in, and I could either take it on board or leave it at the door. Joel, too. They were just about me making the film, which I thought was really respectful. Given their track record, they could insert a lot of influence, but I think that I think that thing that they did speaks about them as human beings and how generous they are. So a lot of people, like I said, a lot of people That's think cool. that this is a, essentially a Wachowski film, like almost like the Toby Hooper Steven Spielberg situation with Poltergeist. A lot of th- people think the Wachowskis uh, directed a lot of this, but I, and I used to think that, but watching it this time, especially back to back with the matrix movies and stuff, it, mm. it does not, it's got some of their, some of their fingerprints in the writing, but visually I don't think it looks like a Wachowski movie at all. Uh, with the exception of that final fight with, right with V. Uh, I, I don't think this looks much like a Wachowski movie at all. And part of the, that theory is that McTeague's subsequent work has not been very good. <laughs> so <laughs> so a lot of people are like, well, he couldn't have directed this one on his own, but he was working from a better script. That's the mm. thing. Yeah. But also, Natalie Portman does uh, discover herself in some very Matrix-like raid with her shaved-ass head like coming out. almost. But that's, str- <laughs> that's directly out of the graphic novel. I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> I could see like the comparisons there already. Yeah. Like, oh, she's an EO. Yeah, that's but that's one of those scenes that is like shot for shot out of the graphic novel. Except in the graphic novel, she is a uh, butt ass naked, which I would not have complained about if that they had Justin. <laughs> oh, <naughty> boy. <laughs> oh. So when the film was released in March of 2006, it was a box office uh, success, not like a major success, but a moderate success, going on to gross $132 million worldwide on a budget of about $54 million, so close to the budget of the first Matrix film. And while it didn't receive widespread acclaim like the first Matrix movie, uh, the film was generally met with positive reviews from critics. Uh, But I'm curious how it's aged for some people, Gary, on the internet. I wonder how some some of our armchair reviewers think of this movie. 
Oh, well, Justin, I mean, as always, the, the attempts for rebellion and revolution are always to wake up a sleeping society, I think. And so, but sometimes you get worn out from that too. And then it ends up that somebody needs a nap. So are you saying all these people that um, that are writing re- these reviews are just tired revolutionaries? Maybe that's it. We'll, we'll <laughs> let the reviews determine. I've got quite a few here, but they're really short, most of them. So it's, uh, it's pretty good. Here's one pretty recent. It's from Pindra- Pindragon, who said, V for fuck off. Half star. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Uh, here's Twilight Girl 69. Ew. <laughs> nice. Uh, this is the dumbest movie I've ever seen. It makes me want to go back in time and assassinate George Orwell for inspiring it. I don't know what's worse, Natalie Portman's British accent or the stupid Shakespeare references. Maybe the worst movie I've seen all year. Uh, that That's quite a statement coming from someone named Twilight Girl 69. I had to include that just so you had context. <laughs> Uh, here's from Kai. Uh, she says, this is a terribly misguided, defanged, and liberal critique of the 2000s. Way to dilute the strong politics of Alan Moore's work. Also, it is intended to be aimless and shallow in its commentary because this film doesn't want to offer an alternative that doesn't conform to the liberal democratic status quo. I'm so sorry for the impressionable poor and pretty bouge or petty bouge youth whose introduction to left politics starts and ends with this commodified dog shit. We need to do better political education. It's really funny watching this dubbed in a tagalog, though. I don't know what a tagalog is. Do you? No, I mean, isn't that a cookie or something? Sure. Siler <laughs> uh, Ellis says, atrocious adaptation of an incredibly powerful graphic novel. Why, yes, I am just saying this because V kisses the girl in this movie, which one, misses the entire point of their friendship in the comic, and two, she's supposed to be a fucking minor. That's the point. What is wrong with you assholes? That seems like a weird thing to get mad about, honestly. <laughs> Jack D says, this movie is incredibly dangerous to the rule of law and order. This and any fiction which promotes similar ideals should be removed from streaming sites and banned for the possibility of inciting violence. Calm down, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. Swindy says, thought this was a joke, couldn't take it seriously, was embarrassed throughout. Nothing but an incel's wet dream made real. I love that they're just coming from all over the place. I know. They're from all different directions. That one was kind of funny on it. The incel's wet dream part is pretty funny. (laughs) Warren Hildebrand That's the only kind of dreams that incels have, honestly. Uh, Flow Futuristic says, so first, I don't know the original work by Alan Moore. I was really disappointed and underwhelmed after watching it. Because everyone talks so much about this movie. The romance between V and Evie feels very forced, and not just because of the whole Stockholm Syndrome situation they got going on, which really made me mad, but also because it just doesn't seem very in character for V to fall in love. The politics in it seem very superficial. I get that the government is bad, but like, is that it? I guess it can make people think about things to a certain level, but honestly that can lead anywhere. I think I would be fine with it if people didn't talk about it as if it's the deepest, most revolutionary thing in the world. Honestly, I was just kind of bored and annoyed. On the bright side, I'd never thought about making eggs on toast like that before. Uh, that person's never heard of egg in a basket? 
Have you guys ever you guys have heard of Megan? I have never before. heard. Oh yeah, of I don't it. think anybody'd heard of it before this movie because by God, I looked it up online and every single recipe you find, like when you Google like egg in a basket or something, it says V for vendettas, egg in a basket. And well, it was around before. It may have had a different name, but it was it was a, it was around before this. I got one more from Nate Kaiman. One of the most ideologically unhinged and narratively overwrought films I've seen in quite some time. An absolute mess of post 9-11 paranoia, conspiracy theorist activism, and romanticized violence against women. The verbose script is an exhausting exercise and articulation for the purpose of making everyone unlucky enough to listen to it feel dumb. Though even more exhausting was attempting to prevent my eyes from rolling so entirely back into my skull at every alliterated introduction. A trend of the film, which within the opening few scenes has already dissolved into self-parody. V for Vendetta lunges toward thematic depth with the grace and consideration of a grand piano falling down a flight of stairs. Religious extremists, biological warfare, superhuman mutations, and necessary anarchy are but a few of the pieces of which the Wachowski brothers crafted narrative so totally overburdened that V for Vendetta would better serve as satire for the sort of ideals it employs. Tackle a Stockholm romance and violence as sad for the world's sins, and you have a film which has already lost itself before most of its threads are introduced. Not even a trademark Wachowski slow motion fight scene could salvage V for Vendetta's meandering crawl toward an ideologically absurd conclusion. That being, of course, the only conclusion it can have, but somehow being even more ridiculous than anticipated once it's arrived. I'm scrambling to find some redeeming quality with which to end this rant, but most when V for Vendetta wasn't actively insulting my intelligence with its juvenile revolution, it was boring me with its hollow characters, horrendous pacing and drab cinematography. Why I set through it is a question that will likely keep me up for nights to come. Wow. And it's, it's for that reason, it's keeping him up for nights to come that uh, Nate needs a nap. He does need a nap. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know who else needs a nap? Who? Alan Moore. Uh, <laughs> Alan Moore was not a fan of this film. Alan Moore disassociated himself from the film at the time of its production and release due to his lack of involvement in the writing or direction of it. Uh, and uh, he has over the years, Moore has kind of become known as a cantankerous old fart, I would say, uh, <laughs> who will never be happy with any adaptation of his work. And that was the case before V for Vendetta. He was already... Uh, even at the time of this, I, I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen had already come yeah. out prior to this, and he was yeah, really and happy from with it. hell. So and like, from he, hell, yep, he's dealing with both of those. And uh, yeah, by by the time this rolled out, I mean you're you're going into this, but he he rejected all money and credit from Hollywood on any adaptations of his work. Yeah, so his name's not on it. He he uh, turned down his fee, uh, and I will say he did give it to the artist, though he did point it to the artist. So uh, you know. There, that's at least a nicer thing to do that if he wants nothing from it that he gave it yeah. to the artist uh, david, david lloyd by the way his only expectation of his adaptation was uh i just want it to be good yeah and, and for this one he called the he got a copy of the wachowski script beforehand he called it rubbish uh said that it ran contrary to his original intent which which was to place two political extremes fascism and anarchism against one another whereas the updated story was more explicitly about, as he said, quote, current American neoconservatism versus current American liberalism. 
so per his wishes, his name does not appear anywhere on the film at all, although David Lloyd's does, and uh, D- David Lloyd did support the film and thought it was quite good. And he said that even Alan Moore, he's like, Alan Moore's never going to be happy with anything that's not a direct, exact adaptation of his comic. And, and Moore, you know, as a result of this, you know, uh, there were some quotes from, I think, Joel Silver saying that Moore had endorsed it or something like that. And Warner Brothers refused to retract those quotes at Moore's request. And as a result, Moore cut ties with Warner, which means cutting ties with DC Comics completely. Yeah. Uh, and and I don't think that they've ever mended that relationship. I don't think he's ever done anything else for DC since since the time of V for Vendetta's release, the movie's release. Yeah, I was reading a lot about this, actually. I was just curious, like, what makes Alan Moore so cranky? I'm trying to be better about, like, seeing both sides of something or, like, trying to understand why someone feels a way. And, uh, yeah, he, he criticized this. It's like, quote, was like, it has more plot holes than you could have gotten away with on Wizard and Chips in the 1960s. I don't even know what the fuck that means, but thanks, British <laughs> <don't> people. <laughs> Some sort of obscure British television reference. I think it's a but, sex move. Oh. Yeah, so <laughs> Joel Silver at a press conference said that Lana Wachowski had talked with Moore beforehand. And Moore was very excited. This is the quote. Moore was very excited about what Lana had to say. Moore disputed this. He he said he told Wachowski, I didn't want anything to do with these films. I wasn't interested in Hollywood. And he demanded that DC Comics force Warner Brothers issue a public retraction like you were talking about. And an apology for Joel Silver blatantly lying. Uh, Silver, Joel Silver tried to call Alan Moore directly to apologize apologize but they never did like you said issue a, a public retraction of that he said you know all that stuff you were just talking about the, basically it's supposed to be about fascism versus anarchy uh and those two words never occur anywhere in this film uh, it's been turned into a bush era parable by people too timid to set a political satire in their own country was the quote uh yeah the new york it- times did an article in 2006 uh five days before it was released. Uh, and Joel Silver said in that article, he met with uh, Alan Moore and David Gibbons when he required the rights for V for Vendetta and Watchmen. And he said there, quote, Alan was odd, but he was enthusiastic and encouraging us to do this. I had foolishly thought that he wouldn't continue feeling that way today, not realizing, or I, I was foolish thinking he would continue to feel that way today, not realizing that he wouldn't. Alan Moore well, this is not... two decades. This is two decades later because you know he requ- acquired those rights in the late '80s. So we're talking 15 years later, probably. And Alan Moore's been, in his mind, burned by Hollywood because that's of a good point. Yeah, the adaptations of Extraordinary Gentleman and, and From Hell, which he was unhappy with. So he didn't actually. Want to now that you say that, yeah, he said uh, Moore. Moore did not deny this meeting nor Silver's characterization of himself. He never said that. He he did say it's been 20 years. Anyway, in the same article, though, in the New York Times, one thing I did want to point out, David Lloyd uh, said about Moore's reaction, quote, Mr. Lloyd, uh, or this is a quote from the article, Mr. Lloyd, the illustrator for V Vendetta, also found it difficult to sympathize with Mr. Moore's protests. When he and Mr. Moore sold their film rights to the comic book, Mr. Lloyd said, quote, we didn't do it innocently. Neither myself nor Alan thought we were signing it over to a board of trustees who would look after it like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that's a uh, that's where they separate. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that it is kind of ironic 
that Moore's biggest complaint about the adaptation is that it's commenting on the then current events. Uh, it was a critique. The, the film it does read as a critique of the regime of George W. Bush and the climate of a post 9-11 world and specifically a post 9-11 America. And Moore in his original story was commenting on the then current events of the mid early to mid 80s. His story was a response to the government under the regime of Margaret Thatcher. So I think it's a little hypocritical of Moore to take issue with that. that the filmmakers were essentially doing the same thing that he had done, only with more recent politics. Uh, now, they did, however, take more definitive sides than he had, whereas his original story was a little more ambiguous. Um, but the film was still kind of a reaction to the times, kind of like what he had done. I think the only reason it works probably is just because they did their own thing with it. Um, right. Like, I, I think that Moore's work is too heady anyway. Uh, yeah. For it to have succeeded like V for Vendetta did. Not saying that they couldn't film. have made a good movie, but it, it just, he he's he's like strictly dealing, which is probably what attracted, to be honest, what attracted the Wachowskis to it is because he is dealing with political philosophy and ideology and that yeah. sort of thing. He's not actually... It seems like in the graphic novel, even, I mean, he's obviously painting someone as the bad guy, but he's also trying to explain like how it gets there and like and, how, what yeah, happens. Exactly. Happens. And also V is very much not painted as just like a, a hero. It's v very is, much this idea of like that, that uh, physics or whatever, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So yeah. like, as far as you yeah. go somewhere else, like something else is going to happen the other way. Yeah. And it's it's and it's gonna always be that way. V in the comics is portrayed as an insane person. Like yeah. uh, clearly the the experiments at Lark Hill have driven him insane in addition to other things, other abilities that they've given him, but he's an insane person. He's not necessarily like a superhero. And and in the in the movie, he is definitely portrayed more explicitly as a good guy. Uh, but so in an interview earlier this year, because this year is the 15th anniversary of V for Vendetta. So there's been a lot of like articles out this year. Uh, but in an interview earlier this year that I read, James McTeague said, quote, what we were really doing with the, with the film was saying that a lot of politics is cyclical. You always go through times when you have a 10 pot dictator uh, for a totalitarian or reactionary government. We were holding a magnifying glass to that. And, you know, we, it's funny because we talk a lot about the prescience that certain filmmakers seem to have. Like, this is something we talked about a lot on our Paul Verhoeven series. But is there anything that we've discussed so far in the show that seems as alarmingly relevant <laughs> as this movie does? I was, just about, I was just about <laughs> to say it had been a while. It had been a while for me, but I don't know that my wife had seen this since 2006. Yeah. And um, and she was like, this is very eerie a lot yeah. of a lot of these things are hitting pretty close to home and a lot of those articles that i i've been i read that have came out for its anniversary this year uh they couldn't help but point out the parallels like in this film's reality a huge chunk a huge chunk of the population has been wiped out by a virus uh, the country is now being run by a neoconservative party that locks up gay citizens and in the, in the graphic novel any non-white citizen that gets locked up or experimented on or any other citizen who practices a religion outside of the state-sanctioned church uh, and there's a lot of support for state-run media and we're not quite at as and it, we, we have never reached quite as extreme a point <laughs> as that uh, but you know last year especially like 2020 you know 
It sure mm. felt like we were on a collision course with this mm. kind of future. Yeah. But I think that goes to McTeague's quote about the cyclical nature of politics, you know, yeah. like this movie will unfortunately probably always feel relevant at certain times in history. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, um, the things that they were worried about back in Guy Fox's day, what goes around comes around. And yeah, it's we're, we're seeing that as recently as last year and stuff still continuing today. Guys, I'm going to totally go out on a limb here and say, and I hate this because I feel like I'm going to get shit on again, but uh, I think you could get all of that out this out of this because it's pretty generic. Like you could literally anybody can watch. There's a political philosophy or like philosophy in general that says like people just like immediately tune out the parts they don't agree with and they'll just accept the parts that they do. I think this is such a bland expression of, like, I mean, the best I could pull out of it is that, yeah, violence is going to occur when people feel like their voices aren't heard. Yeah. And that's and that's what you could get out of it. And that's that's the generic principle that it's playing with. And other than that, it makes literally no statement whatsoever. Like they're the what is V? Well, stand I mean, it's, for? It's, you don't you don't have a statement that V stands for. He just wants to blow shit up like he's just doing it because freedom and well, and that's whoever can take and, and, that as liberals conservatives libertarians like well, anybody and it, and it has it has yeah. been that, that it could be of, anybody uh, could take that message and run with it for v and well i think that's probably part of what moore's issue with it was is that he uh was a little more uh, for lack of a better term revolutionary in his politics uh more so than i don't know if the wachowskis just didn't have the nerve to do it or if it's because they were working for a major studio you know and maybe they, they had to make something that was a little more uh, palpable to the mainstream, or maybe it's because their last attempt at doing something that was a little more out there as far as audience expectation was the matrix sequels. And those didn't go over particularly well with a lot of people, but this yeah. is also a, res- a response to, this is a time, uh, this was made at a time in history where things uh, to a lot of people in politics, things were a little more, seemed a little more black and white they weren't but the perception of because this was made in 2006 uh, five years after 9 11 uh and you and one thing that they it probably felt very revolutionary or or at least very uh radical uh, of a move to make by having your main character in a movie five years after 9 11 be a essentially a terrorist i mean v is a terrorist in this uh like gary said his ideals are not spelled out as well as they probably could be uh but having a terrorist whose main uh, source of or his main his main weapon is blowing up big buildings and he's supposed to be the hero of your movie you know yeah. uh, had you made him a little bit more morally ambiguous like he is in the comic books i think it might have worked a little bit better but i do i do like the movie still uh i think it works well as a film as as a blockbuster film uh, I, I do think that the points that it makes about fascism and the the creeping death of liberty, these are they're old points. They're not saying anything new, but they're they're they are points that they they have this a spotlight shown on them anytime under anytime that those in power are trying to undermine democracy, which is what was happening with the Patriot Act around the time that this came out. So there are times when this seems more relevant, even if its politics are a little like Gary said, a little more vague, but there are times when 
when they feel more relevant based on what's going on in the world around. Well, Does that make well, sense? Do you- do you think that perhaps, you know, in what we've discussed about the Wachowski's filmography thus far, that the that the actual focus is the discovery of self? I think you're fair there, because I don't think it's that the Wachowskis are idiots or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I'm not dissing the movie completely when I say what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, the movie is not attempting to get too deep into that. It's setting up a bunch of straw man arguments at, at points. And I'm sure that that's what Alan Moore's pissed off about yeah. uh, or that it's not digging deeper into those thoughts. But if you, if you take something like just like Justin pointed out, I mean, the big thing at this time, and especially what it may, would have made it so impactful is yes, 9-11, the Patriot Act, all of that stuff. Like people want to be able to control it or, or hear like everything you see or do. And Sam, I mean, like look at this setup and all the TVs that are all around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's about like, Oh, you like sedate everybody with capitalism, I guess, is is what they're trying to say or what it seems like the movie's trying to say. But I guess and I'm not trying to get too in the weeds on this either, but I, I'm just thinking like if I'm looking at this broadly, a lot of people could take that like just for instance. And again, not trying to start a whole discussion down this rabbit hole. But if you were to say in 2021, watch this and you were to say, oh, people are trying to uh silence art trying to you know like you could immediately equate it to cancel culture is where i'm going to like they would they would be like oh we're fighting against that because like they're telling us we can't listen to dave Chappelle anymore or they're whatever like that's that's people people will take whatever they want to out of it The, the the subject is too broad here and maybe and maybe even for the wachowskis it's about that. It's about fighting yourself and fighting your own opinion and the freedom to discover who you are as an individual and that sort of thing. Well, I think if anything, as far as its uh, its politics go, I think that it, you, you could watch it now in 2021 and it almost feels like it just doesn't go far enough with some of the stuff that, that it's trying to say. Uh, I, I found an article uh, by a, a critic named Scott Meslow. He wrote, this is not a new article. It came out in 2018, so it's a few years old. Uh, but he he wrote about the film. He says, it imagines a universe in which a single shooting death of an innocent girl could inspire an entire society to stand up against a militaristic police force. It imagines the resistance to an anti-democratic political movement rising up in part from powerful but principled members of, of that political movement. A modern adaptation might dismiss all those plot points as too optimistic. As like, And I think he's kind of right, like because like there's a moment in this movie where it's about halfway through where we see a newspaper headline that reads 80,000 dead. Uh, And it's meant to be shocking to both the audience and the character who sees it. Uh, But now it's 2021 and fuck we've in the last year and a half, we've seen 3 million people died from the the current pandemic. So the 80,000 dead doesn't have quite the shock that it did uh, maybe in 2005. Uh, Yes. Okay. So we've touched a little bit on this, but, and I do think all the Wachowski's films are political to a certain point, uh, none more obviously probably than this one. But I think most importantly, this does continue the themes of identity and transformation that we see throughout their filmography. Uh, and I think that specifically, this is what Todd was, was I think, hinting at. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think Evie's story is a story of, of rebirth almost. Uh, uh, it's a story about drawing strength from kind of becoming confident in her own identity uh it's a major point in the story's narrative even uh, for 
if from a personal standpoint, the way that V fuels her transformation is pretty cruel. Uh, but despite his methods, what V is doing is he's creating an environment that causes Evie to be liberated from her own fear for being uh, afraid to be who she is. Uh, the entire film, in fact, is about how fear either numbs us or turns us against each other. That's that's the entire method of suppression by the government in the film. This is suppression uh, of anything. You look at look at the beginning of this movie. Look at like the entire setup at the beginning is Evie, who you know through the movie you find out is like the daughter of revolutionaries um who you know has watched her parents die uh for their beliefs and you can take that as far as you want to like they they believed in something so much they died and she's alone she's trapped she's like in her own little world and she is at the beginning of the movie like making herself up in a mirror and guess who else is v is doing that but no it's a totally different scenario like they're they're creating like their alternate identity basically from like who they are as a person so it's clearly like that's a that's a statement like that that's what they're going for so i'm I'm with that and i think that it's despite the political stuff in the film i think it's really evie's transformation that's kind of the heart of the film uh she even says there's there's that one point where she says that this is after she's got had her head shaved and you know everything and she says that she ran into like an old co-worker and they looked each other in the eyes and the person didn't even recognize her uh, and, and I do think that that tracks with a lot of the themes in the Wachowski's other work. Um, and I, I think the biggest theme in the end, and as cheesy as it sounds, um, <laughs> I think one of the big themes in a lot of these movies is love conquers all. Because that's really, it's Valerie's story that she reads when she's locked up. That story, you know, th- there's that moment where in, in Valerie's story that she's writing, where she says, she's talking about all this horrible stuff that's happened to her but she's like yeah but for three years i had roses and that's sort of the emotional crux of this entire story and it's really what what really fuels evie to continue on and not give up and become who she's supposed to be uh and you could say that about a lot of the wachowski's movies though that that like love uh, the love between the characters is sort of the crux of them moving on with their life like you could say it in bound you know, because Jennifer Tilly's character is pretending to be one thing that she's not until she falls in love with Gina Gershon. You could say it about about Neo, and especially in the Matrix sequels, where it says love for Trinity because he's got a connection to the human world that causes him to move along his journey and face the machines at the end. It's really, uh, it, it's, a, it's a theme that I didn't realize we were going to see recurring in these films when we started this series, but it's something that we've seen in every one of them so far. I, yeah, and I think, you know, along those same lines, I feel like it's kind of a a little bit of a call to action of like, it's very easy to sit on the sidelines and just kind of, oh, well, it's just, it's going to work itself out. Right. And I think the idea of love also, what Justin was just saying, that idea of love and love conquers all, um, I think can also translate into care, you know, uh, getting involved, whatever getting level, yeah. And showing like, hey, yeah, the, you know, oppression comes in, you know, in many different forms, be it, you know, good for us, bad for us, be it the government or this terrorist, like they're both going about it the wrong way, but what are you going to do? And it's important that you care about this world because this is what you've got. And I think that kind of goes, so it's, I see it as exactly what Justin said, but also sort of a call to action of like, hey, get off your ass like 
go vote, yeah. pick up a book, you know, get involved, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's your world too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could see it that way. And, that, and this is again, though, like, cause I feel like on the same token, another thing you could take from it is the fact that it's telling you, I, I do agree with the love sentiment and I, I and I think it's about individuals and your individual identity or like being able to be who you really are and and that sort of thing which lines up with the wachowskis i feel like but there's also the idea of like i don't know i feel like if i looked hard enough i could probably like tell you that it's also about not forcing it like not that love is the way you inspire change you don't force change like at first v kidnaps her and tries to make her see things his way and it still doesn't work because even when she's about to get fucking raped by that guy the priest she's still trying to turn v in because she's still afraid of v he's he's still different weird and like not you know but but she's it's not until like she starts getting out there and seeing the real world for what it is and seeing what's happening around her and reading that story that she starts to it, she's inspired to accept who she is yeah. it's not yeah. like you can't it's not like a forcible thing like you can't yeah. you know what i mean so it's yeah. i don't know and maybe and and so that's why it's weird because i like it's it's broad enough that you can pull different it's it's like it's like the bible v for vendetta is like the bible <laughs> <laughs> as, as it's often said yes about me for vendetta oh that's that old <laughs> so, chestnut i guess that's where i'm going <laughs> so i didn't think i would say that line during this episode <laughs> no i just mean when you put some like broad overarching philosophical stuff you you gotta trust people to start pulling the stuff you you hope they do out of it yeah which is why even the guy fox mask has become a symbol for so many uh, uh differing political movements most famously of course anonymous and uh it, back in the early 2010s i think it was with occupy wall street is re- when that really kind of took off but that guy fox mask just like the red pill blue pill shit from the the matrix ha- is able is is a symbol that's able to be used for either side m- multiple sides you know like it really well, can and be and be like I mean, if 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 anything, one strict thing that V definitely says in the movie is that people shouldn't be afraid of their government. The government should be afraid of their people. Yeah, and that's always a thing. Like I mean, and and again, I guess either side could could run with that. But the the uh, the idea would be that you know I go back to the thing about every action has an equal and opposite reaction because like you know whatever you allow your government to control whatever you allow it to dictate for you just keep in mind at some point that power can turn over to somebody else right. it could be the people you don't like so you have to you have to be careful about how much you rely on it and how much you rely on the people to make the right decisions exactly to, yeah to change so if you guys were going to do uh a V for Vendetta double feature, as we all, you know, we always like to do this segment towards the end of the episode. What would you pair V for Vendetta with? Uh, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options, but what, uh, what would you guys pair V for Vendetta with as a, as a double feature? Well, I, you know, first I just of all, finished... I'd pair it with anybody that doesn't say double feature. <laughs> I just keep saying it because I know how much you like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just finished talking about, you know, this is a call to action the action being to care 
And I would pair this with um, Equilibrium, where that is quite literally what they have problems doing. They have problems yeah. feeling. They have problems caring. And there's this totalitarian government that, uh, you know, is controlling quite literally the emotions of the people. And um, yeah, I think that would make a, you know, thematically, I think that would make a good uh, double feature there. Yeah. What about the Matrix? Have you guys thought about that? <laughs> <laughs> that like, can work. Just like... <laughs> You're waking wait, up wait, to what, the real let world. Write, and... let, me, let me write it down. What's it called again? The Matrix. The Matrix. <laughs> I'll even get weirder. How about The Watchmen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> The Watchmen seems like an obvious one, but honestly, they would make a very good double feature. Uh, I happen to really like Zack Snyder's Watchmen. I know people are hit or miss on it, but I, I think I would do. I think The Watchmen would make a great double feature. If you're going to do an Alan Moore double feature, those are the two you're, you you want to do. I mean, I think. I think From Hell is pretty good, but uh, I, I would I would go Watchmen in this because I like the way that they handle uh, – they handle, I feel like, a lot of the same themes. Yeah, I was going to so, say yeah. roundabout. It's the same same exact themes, like just, you know, just – yeah. Who, the, even the who watches the Watchmen thing, like is yeah. The, so Watchmen would be one of my choices, honestly. But if you do want to go another direction, I think it would be fun. Uh, 1984, sure, uh, which came yeah. out the, came out in 1984, starring John Hurt. Uh, you know, it's directed by Michael Radford. I mean, that I think that would make a really good thematic double feature, and you get to see John Hurt in a very uh, kind of opposite role. Uh, and it's a good movie. Uh, it's a great looking movie because it's uh, Roger Deakins, the legendary Roger Deakins did the cinematography in that film. Uh, but yeah, you should definitely check that one out if you haven't. I think that would that would work really well. Nice. So the Wachowskis, you know, they would continue to work with James McTeague after this film, uh, although never to the same level of success, either critically or commercially. Uh, in 2007, McTeague was brought in to do reshoots on a film called The Invasion, which was in a, a, a it was kind of an update of Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. I don't know if you guys remember this. Oh, it kind of yeah. came and went. But yeah. uh, McTeague only worked on the film for 17 days. He, he came in to fix stuff that the studio was thought was, was an issue. Uh, working off of rewrites by the Wachowskis. This is all uncredited. None of them are, none of their names are on the film. They kind of came uh, in to try to fix it. Didn't work. The movie was still a bomb. <laughs> but then in 2009, he returned to the director's chair for Ninja Assassin, which was produced by Joel Silver and the Wachowskis, although this time the Wachowskis had no involvement in the script. They simply, simply lent their names as, as producers. That film's script was actually written by Babylon 5 creator J. Michael Straczynski. Yay. And I'm only mentioning that because uh, it's a notable connection because Straczynski years later would co-create the TV series Sense8 alongside the Wachowskis. And McTeague actually directed a couple of episodes of that show as well. Yeah, uh, for, you know, we've talked a lot about comics during this. If, uh, if anybody is interested in some further reading, uh, I may have mentioned it once or twice already, but J. Michael Straczynski uh, turned in a great run of amazing spider-man right after um uh, you know um leading up to and then post 9 11 uh the early 2000s his run on the amazing spider-man is really fantastic it's really good well in between v for vendetta and ninja assassin mctee had one more film where he wasn't sitting in the director's chair which is last credit as as an assistant director and actually in this case a second unit director uh in 2008, he did some second unit directing work on the film that would uh, be the official follow-up to The Matrix for the Wachowskis. And that film, 
is an adaptation of a Japanese cartoon from the 1960s, and it has split audiences and critics since its release in 2008. And this show, and we're going to talk about it, and on this show in the past, and we're going to talk <laughs> about it on our next episode. Next time, in two weeks, we're going to talk about Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer, go! And I'm excited about it because I happen to love it. I'm just going to put cards on the table. I love. <laughs> well, you Speed can't Racer. go into it saying that, Justin. That's and car- well, it creates a it, bias. It's a spoiler. Well, I go into every movie hoping I'm going to love it. Here's the thing, you know. So yeah, I'm just happy they actually get to work on some Japanese animation finally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll check that out next week. It's, it should be a fun discussion because the, the making of the movie is pretty wild. Uh, its reception is wild. Its legacy is is pretty fun. Uh, and I know that Gary in the past has not enjoyed it. So I'm hoping maybe he'll change his tune this time. It's happened before on the it's show. It's happened. It's happened yeah, multiple times. It. I'm gonna yeah, go yeah. into it just like okay, maybe I didn't understand it last time. Yeah, so we'll try and I don't know where Todd falls, so we'll find out next week. But uh, mm. yeah, it should be fun, good time. So if you oh, want to yes. watch Speed Racer along with us, uh, of course, it's probably pretty easy to find streaming. Head to cinemashock.net. We'll have links to everywhere that you can stream it currently. Uh, you can also find all of our episodes there on the website. You can find links to our social media. Uh, you can find links to our merchandise if you want to buy a Cinema Shock t-shirt or a Cinema Shock sticker or a Cinema Shock skateboard. Uh, yeah. You can, you can get. Uh, they're all, it's all out there. Uh, wall clock. What do you want? What do you want the logo on? We can figure it out. So, <laughs> well, guys, where can you be found on the internet for our listeners? I bet this is Gary Horde on all the social medias. I have a wrestling podcast at TIPW show. You should check it out. <laughs> Great finish, uh, Gary. <laughs> and uh, I have uh, I have a Star Trek podcast where we're covering the entire franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. And uh, that can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And you can reach out to that show on the socials at Computer Resume. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. All right. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, where I've been logging my, my Halloween watch through, which I haven't watched a lot uh, this year. I've been too busy and watching Wachowski movies and, and stuff. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch as many horror movies as I'd like, but I have logged them there. Gary, I saw that your wife is very um, active on Letterboxd. The hey, other listen, day. I've been decently active. I've been, but I've been I didn't trying. even know she was using it. And I, I like, she commented on one of my article, one of my reviews the other day. So I clicked on her profile. And like she doesn't review things, but she logs like everything. It seems like. she does. She does. Yeah. She's how I'm remembering things I've watched. I'm trying yeah. to go back <laughs> and complete my 2021. It's taken a while, but yeah. uh yeah, she's how I remember because I don't know. We've got like a movie night with some friends on Wednesdays, and like I watch movies for this show, and uh, and also just movies for fun, and just then there's just <laughs> the movies for fun, which all of Halloween is always horror movies. So I have to go back and. Like, gosh, shit, what did I watch? And uh, anyway, I'm trying to be better about logging them relatively soon after I saw them, though, because yeah. it turns out no matter how hard I try, I will for- forget. Yeah, I usually do it once the credits roll. Just log it, and then I'll, if I want to review it or star rate it later, I'll do that, but I'll at least log it so I remember that I watched it. You know, anyway, we're all on Letterbox, I think. Um, yeah. So. You can also find Cinema Shock at Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter, Instagram. We're on Facebook. Go like us and go join our Facebook group on there. Go join our Discord. And uh, until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. 
I want this podcast to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman, and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember Johnny has the keys.